You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture, interpreting and explaining the origins of video game symbolism since 2021. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I already spread the good news, I think two weeks ago, that my PlayStation 5 has been repaired. Yes, praise be. <laughs> praise be. Oh my God, but that is a terrible phrase, isn't it? Oh, is it? <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> praise be. I think praise be is a phrase that originates in uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Oh dear. I, <laughs> I just meant good news. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness. And I'm associated with an oppressive sexist regime. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but the PS5 is fixed. The rest mode works now. And I've been playing lots of Hades, which is a whole lot of fun. So I know last time we spoke about it, you were uh, really enjoying all the dialogue. Have you, have you done like a full run yet? Or are you still working on the final boss? I have not done only one run. I've done three full runs so far. Ah. Mm. Three full runs. Still loving it? Still loving it. I'm quite impressed by the fact that after the first run, I had a moment where I thought, mm, maybe I should just quit now because mm. I've seen everything kind of and now it's just min-maxing. Yeah. I'm very glad that I didn't do that and that I continued and pressed on because the gameplay continues to evolve, new things come in. You could even argue that from a gameplay perspective, the game really begins once mm. you've completed your first run. Then all of the options basically become unlocked. You can let loose and you can buff up your character even further. And the nice thing about it is, it is also just the midway point of the story development. Actually, as far as I'm aware, you need to, in order to reach some kind of proper ending, Mm. At least defeat the end boss 10 times. Wow. Mm. I, I do love games that do that, though, where the repetition is the point of the game, so they reward you for repeating things like that with more story. And it seems like Hades is that uh, basically down to its most beautiful components. Definitely. It continues to evolve. I'm still super curious and super involved in the story. And... While I might not go for the Platinum Trophy, I'm mm. very happy to make these 10 runs because I also check my stats. And I think if you are reasonably skilled within this game, I'm not saying I'm super amazing and I'm not min-maxing everything, but one run takes roughly between half an hour to an hour now. Once you have wow. reached a certain level, then you just breeze through the, the beginning areas and so on. The yeah. boss fights are the true challenges and you just try to prepare everything for your final boss fight because you know what's coming ahead. And I think uh, that's pretty neat. It's a relatively short amount of time. It's like basically in an evening, you can easily complete one entire run. That's so satisfying. Well, I I have been uh, tapping into Pokemon Arceus and oh. we're going to be doing a full review of it. But I will say when I talked about um, the Diamond and Pearl remake, I talked about how Sword and Shield had that hook, I think, for both of us pretty early on. We were engaged with it. I struggled to find that in Diamond and Pearl. It took a while. Um, Pokemon Arceus does not have that problem. It's really interesting and innovative from the start. And I'm very excited to talk about that with you because it's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to it as well. Looking forward to your final review impressions on the matter. 
in the meantime, I want to thank everyone out there who jumped on the bandwagon to uh, subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus, which is our Patreon program. A couple of people have joined over the last couple of weeks. I'm really happy to see that because that's how we finance this show. And if you want to help us, then you can do that. And in exchange, you get a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels, and you get a monthly plus episode. This month, we have recorded a plus episode on 10 features that should be in every game. And while some of them might be a little bit, well, let's say obvious or not all that significant, Others definitely are ideas of how the entire approach to video game, video game design and video game engagement might change. So check that out. If you are curious about it, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Our main story today come on. The origins of the Triforce. Yes. So, Stefan, at the beginning of every show, you introduce yourself as a game studies scholar. I yes. introduce myself as a Japanese scholar. Mm. And uh, many people may ask, what does that, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I wonder myself. <laughs> yes. Uh, does it mean I am a scholar who's Japanese? No, that's not, <laughs> that's not the case. I am a study, uh, or a, a studier, a scholar of Japanese culture, history, language, and religion. Mm. And the way that I got into that was through, um, as we kind of talked about with Matt, Game Gango, anime, manga, and video games. Ah, I link that episode that we had with Matt, which was very entertaining on how to study mm. Japanese with video games. I'll link that in the show notes for everyone who hasn't listened to it yet. I think that this is the experience I had, and I feel like there are many people like me who are engaged with Japanese study where, you know, you grow up, um, at least as I did in America, and, you know, you watch American movies, American TV, and everything kind of feels very similar. But then I think there's, there's a certain moment that people have where they engage with a piece of Japanese art and they say, I want to know everything about this. <laughs> this mm. is so, this is so different and so interesting and it just feels right up my alley. I want to dive deep into it and figure out everything I can. It is definitely a world of its own, right? With its own yeah. uh, symbols, with its own tropes, with its own archetypes, and its own kind of just vibe and understanding of the world and the place that we have in the world. It is. And it's it's so it, it becomes so much richer when you look into it and understand the origins of certain things or the historical background. Um, 
in certain cases, the religious background of certain things. Um, and that's why today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Triforce. Um, I would say, and I don't know that you disagree with me, one of the most, if not the most, recognizable symbols in video games. Yeah, it is that kind of triangle that consists of three triangles, basically, and yeah. another triangle in the middle, basically, an empty triangle. Yeah, yeah. Very simple, very recognizable, and integral to the Legend of Zelda st uh, story. Yes, I closely associate it with... I've, I think I've only ever seen it in The Legend of Zelda. I think the first time it... I didn't play the early Zelda games, but it definitely occurred to me very clearly in the on the menu screen of Ocarina of Time, because that's where it appears while Link is riding over a mountain on Epona, and yes. the logo appears, and there's, a I think, a Triforce up there. There is, yep. And it's so um, ubiquitous throughout the series, because it holds... I mean, it's a... It, it's more or less the the object of the games. Um, different games have different stories around it, but in some way or the other, the Triforce is kind of the locus. Either somebody's trying to get it, somebody's working on behalf of it. There's all of these different stories that tie into the Triforce as this kind of guiding, connecting symbol in the world of Hyrule. And so if you're curious about where that three triangle, or four triangle, I guess, symbol comes from, it didn't just come from a scratchbook, uh, a notebook on Shigeru Miyamoto's desk. Um, there is some pretty deep history um, in Japan about this symbol. It's not called the Triforce in Japanese history. Um, it's what's referred to as a kamon, or family crest. And we'll get into the specifics of that. But before we do, um, just to give a little background on what the Triforce is in the world of the game... Um, I think is really cool because when you hear the history, light, light bulbs start going off in your head. So, Stefan, your, your understanding of the Triforce, if you could like nutshell it to me, what would you say this thing is? Ah, it's hard to recall the details, but just mm. from what I remember, I remember an introductory cutscene in Ocarina of Time where mm. three goddesses, I think female goddesses, Megami <laughs> in Japanese, <laughs> yeah. where three goddesses descend upon the earth and there they, I think, create different parts or different aspects of Hyrule, different aspects yeah. of this video game world. And I always kind of thought, without actually consciously thinking about it, that the three triangles and the Triforce represent those three goddesses. That's right. Yep. So, that is right? Yeah, yeah. There's, well, it, it is right. And it's not, it's not incorrect. Because the reason I say that is because each game has a bit of a different story for the Triforce. Okay. Um, but the one that I always think of is the one from Ocarina of Time, which you've hit the nail on the head. It's a creation myth, more or less, where yeah. these three goddesses that created Hyrule, when they left, they converged, and the last thing that they left to humanity, the people of Hyrule, was this Triforce. And this item is composed of three virtues, uh, power, wisdom, and courage. Power, wisdom, and courage. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if you are to hold the Triforce or approach it, it's not very clear, but the idea is that if you are pure of heart and you approach the Triforce, you can make a perfect wish. So the story of Ocarina of Time, Ganondorf, the evil villain, approaches it with impurity in his heart and it breaks the Triforce in three pieces. And 
plunges the world into darkness. So that's kind of the origin story. Here's a religious studies term for you, the mythopoeia of Hyrule. This but, so, so you're telling me that Ganondorf, <clears throat> the villain, that he basically is an equivalent to one of these triangles, to the triangle of power? Yes. So in the story of uh, of Ocarina of Time, and this, this happens in other games as well, the Triforce, power, wisdom, and courage, when it's split, these disparate pieces latch themselves onto some, a, a character who is more or less an avatar of that virtue. So Ganondorf always gets power, Zelda always gets wisdom, and Link, the player, always gets courage. And when these three come together, the idea is that, you know, if you were to have all these virtues, you would be worthy enough to make this perfect wish granted to you by the goddesses. But doesn't that mean that basically this mythopoeia implies that all of these three forces, including Gandalf, which mm. you evidently fight throughout most of the Zelda games, is a part of that perfection, a part of that creation? Absolutely. I think, especially in games like um, Skyward Sword, where Skyward Sword is, I think, love it or hate it, um, it is the... Uh, it's Nintendo's attempt at a true origin story for all of their symbol, uh, symbolatry and um, uh, just ideas of um, where certain things come from in this world of Hyrule and the Legend of Zelda. And that game is pretty explicit in saying that these three virtues are eternal, so is the sort of struggle or strife between them. And it's only uh, for them to disappear would be for the world to disappear they're completely locked in perpetuity. So it's a little bit like the idea of a, let's say, I don't know much about these religious symbols. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking mm. of such things like the yin and yang. I'm mm. thinking of the good and the bad, or in this case, the three virtues that are expressed in different ways that always kind of need to be or ought to be in a certain balance with one another. I think that's a, a, a smart way of putting it. And the yin and yang... Um, is a great symbol to kind of be a shorthand for this because I do think that the Triforce in the Legend of Zelda games is about balance. The idea is that a person who is perfectly balanced in their understanding of power, wisdom, and courage, they would be worthy to make this wish. You have somebody like Ganondorf who's very imbalanced and is just, uh, I guess another good way to look at it would be if you are if you are holding the corrupted version of the virtue. So power can be used for good or evil, and Ganondorf being the king of evil is going to be using it for bad things. So he's very imbalanced, and his interaction with the Triforce shatters it. There is also, I think, an integral aesthetic of balance to a triangle, to a perfectly mm. symmetrical triangle that in itself holds an aesthetic value of balance, doesn't it? Yes, I think... If you look at that symbol and you try to take, well, you can actually see this in a game like Ocarina of Time. So Link, Zelda, and Ganondorf, they all have um, a Triforce symbol on their hand. And the virtue that they have is the only one that glows. And you can see that it, it doesn't seem right without the other two, right? Like you, you yeah. see the faded other triangles 
but there's something incomplete and really off-putting about that shape when it's not complete. Well, that is certainly interesting because it kind of expresses an idea of, I would say, almost holism that includes the evil, includes the bad, includes the the vice, basically, into the idea of a balanced perfection. I find that very interesting. I think a, a cool way to look at it, because you brought up the yin and yang, which I think, again, is a, a very comparable symbol, even though it's um, Taoist in origin. Um, but it it shows up in Japan all the time. It's actually called the onmyo. Um, and uh, the idea, if you look at it, is the white part of the yin and yang has a little black circle in it and vice versa with the black part with a white circle. So the idea being that within light is darkness and within darkness is light. And there's always this balance going on. Likewise, the Triforce has the three triangles pointing upwards and the one in the middle that points downwards. Yeah. So there's always a push and pull between these forces. I think it's now, wonderful all the things that are basically expressed within one such symbol. But you said now as if yes. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get into something meaty now. Yes. So if that wasn't meaty enough, that's basically the idea of the Triforce within the game. Um it's uh, a very important symbol. It shows up everywhere. Most importantly, um, at least for our discussion today, it's the symbol of the royal family of Hyrule. So it's connected to this sort of monarchic power that exists where this um, family to which Zelda belongs has ruled over Hyrule for however many generations. And right in the middle of their family crest is this symbol, the Triforce. Very important, very um, powerful symbol in this world. So it doesn't just come out of thin air, though. Um, the Triforce is identical to a common, and a common is a family crest. So this is something that you you probably would recognize now that we've kind of talked about it. But in Japan, families or clans have their own crest. And it's In Germany, by the way, there's some mm. that have that as well. Oh, like a coat of arms? Yeah, they're also some... Kind yeah, of? yeah, yeah. similarly. They're also mm. proper like family crests, often of families that originally were of some kind of higher, um, higher status. Mm. That's cool. I, I think... Well, actually, you mentioned higher status. That's an important part here, right? So just like the, the royal family with this crest... Um, in the world of the game, uh, you would only have a, a crest if you were important enough to be part of a clan. <laughs> yeah. If your family was important, you had a crest. And the Hojo clan was very important. Yes. So the Hojo clan uh, <laughs> was a group of people who, they found a parasitic alien that fell to Japan, um, and they started to study it, and they developed a soldier program. No. <laughs> Professor Hojo. Um, the Hojo Good clan was... Final Fantasy references. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Always appreciated. <laughs> Rife with them. Um, but the Triforce, as we know it, is identical to the Kamon or family crest of the Hojo clan. And the Hojo clan were a very important family, a very important clan in the 12th to 13th centuries of Japan. They, in essence, were the actual real power of Japan during that time um, in conjunction with some other groups. But they were kind of, they were the big name 
and they kind of stood in um, for governmental power for the shogunate, which at the time in Japan was largely a figurehead, um, the the shogun in, in his cabinet. Yeah, so the shogun, this basically the officially declared emperor, the ruler of the entire country, whereas the clans are kind of more of like communal, but mm. very have have a, a lot of political influence when it comes to the day-to-day -day life of people, right? Yeah, so it's um more or less, yeah. So the 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 shogun and the emperor were two distinct entities. The okay, emperor is thank sort you of, for clarifying. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> the emperor um is the religious figurehead of Japan. Um because the idea is that the imperial family is descended from Amaterasu, the sun goddess. The shogun and the shogunate it's sort of like if I guess an easy comparison would be like in England, you have the Queen, but then you have the Parliament. You have and the, the Queen, and then you have Boris Johnson, <laughs> <laughs> the Shogun of his day. Like <laughs> yes. um, but the sort of idea that there's the, you know, the the kind of religious or um, cultural leader of the country, and then there's the actual governing body. Mm. But at this time during the Kamakura period of Japan, um, it was really, as you said, it, it was kind of down to which clan had the most influence. So the Hojo clan, very influential. And they held a lot of power for a very long time. And they also were instrumental in bringing Zen Buddhism um, to the forefront of the Japanese people's minds. So this was a group that had a I mean, you know, a couple hundred years, a fairly long reign. And the family crest, the Kamon, which was actually called the Mitsuro Ko, which is the three scales, that symbol was everywhere because they were everywhere. And it was a symbol of their power, their control. Um, and depending on who you were, their benevolence. So you would see it on flags, you would see it on public buildings, Everywhere, mm. kind of. Yeah, shrines. Um, I'm sure it appeared at temples because of their Zen Buddhist uh, yeah. influence. Um, so, yeah, this, what we would call the Triforce, you would have seen everywhere at this time, especially around Kyoto, where this sort of seat of power was. So, what's really interesting, too, I lived in Kyoto for a while. And before I knew this history, I just, I, the Triforce, I just thought, oh, that's a Zelda thing. Yeah. But then walking around, uh, walking <laughs> around, I, I would see it everywhere. And I, I would see it on, if I went to a graveyard, I would see it on gravestones. I would see it on and shrines. You, and you thought like that's proper dedication to, to <laughs> the Zelda franchise. Yeah. Well, you know, Nintendo's been around a long time. They were a trading card yeah. company, so they got in early. <laughs> I want the Triforce on my grave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but it's, it, it really is, I mean, it, for someone who grows up uh, knowing that symbol only as a, a symbol in a video game, to see it in the real world outside of a video game advertising context, it, it gets you thinking, oh, this must have some cultural importance. And it did. It, it was, I mean, a very important symbol for a very long time. And even though the Hojo clan isn't around and exercising power to this day, um, the symbol still is pretty big in Japan, even outside of the Triforce. 
the um, the Mitsuro Ko is the sign of an electric power company, an energy company. Um, oh, to this Japan. day? To this day, yep. Oh, really? Yeah. So you'll, you could still see, um, you know, walking around certain parts of Japan, you'll see it on the sides of, of billboards or buildings and you'll, you'll notice, oh, okay, that's, that's the Triforce advertising for this power company. Yeah, that's the interesting thing that I just thought. It's the Triforce. Oh, you think, ah, clearly that's the Triforce. Uh, so Nintendo has apparently not or not been able to trademark it, right? Because otherwise it would be... <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. interesting because a lot of companies trademark their most iconic symbols and the Triforce would be one where I definitely would have thought before we started this episode that they certainly have like Triforce TM. Maybe yeah. the word itself, that, that would be possible. Like, I'm not sure whether you can make a video game and invent a thing that's called Triforce. I'm not sure whether that will... You will certainly uh, garner some attention from Nintendo's lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> but the symbol in itself, at least, is something that is basically so culturally embedded in uh, Japanese culture that it would not be something of a violation of, you know, uh, yeah. copyright issues or something. Exactly. It, it's sort of like... Um, um, so my... Uh, the the period that I studied really intensely was the Tokugawa period, which is, I think when people think about Japanese history, that's kind of where their mind goes. It's when the samurai kind of ruled everything. Um, and there's a a symbol for the Tokugawa clan, the Mitsuba Aoi. It's three leaves. Um, and it's very recognizable. And it would be like, even though that's such an, an important image it would be like trademarking someone's name and i think uh to my knowledge anyway that's just not done in japan um yeah. i i may be wrong but I, you as you say there's no big fight between the mitsuroko and nintendo for this symbol it's yeah. just part of history but it goes even further than that because you're probably thinking okay that's really interesting about the hojo clan where did they get it? Where did this idea for the, the three triangles come from? Well, it wasn't just made out of whole cloth, or if it was, there's a story to explain where it comes from. So it may be the case that they made it out of whole cloth, but they have a very convincing story about where it comes from. So I say convincing. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it is a story. It's a story. <laughs> <laughs> so in keeping with our kind of mythopoeic background of the history of the Triforce. Um, the Mitsuroko has its roots in a kind of religious adjacent story. Now, before I get into this, one thing that I must make clear, if anyone is going to study Japanese history and religion, you have to understand that it's pretty inextricably linked together. And I, I don't mean in the sense that everybody's practicing Shinto every day, because that's just not true. But what I do mean is religious texts like the Kojiki and even the Heike Monogatari, which isn't religious, but it's a very culturally important text. These texts would tell the stories of religious figures, gods, goddesses, and then connect those gods and goddesses to real life clans. And the reason those clans wrote it that way was to give themselves cultural import. So the imperial family, it's very important that they're descended from Amaterasu 
because she's she's the top. She's the head, right? Um, so it's important for everyone to know our family comes from this goddess. Yeah. It seems like a, an understanding of a connection between the um, the earthly realms and the, the, let's say, godly realms or the spiritual realms that is somewhat similar to how it's been employed in ancient Greece, where there would yeah. also be a close connection to the gods, where certain people would kind of be just simply in touch with the gods, hang out mm. with the gods, or even have sex with the gods, you know? <laughs> yeah. Something that's not, in, not, not unconventional at all in ancient Greece. It's like, yeah, of course, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just... Uh, this is uh, it's it's shorthand you know who i am because of who i'm connected to right yeah basically yeah. social capital and uh, if i understand <laughs> you correctly then at that time the claim to be closely connected or associated or in allegiance with a god would be like profound social capital yes and it would be legitimacy in a way that um if enough people hear the story and understand that that's sort of your background that puts you on a different pedestal than, you know, Joe Schmo down the street who's trying to yeah. gain power in the shogunate. <laughs> yeah. So this uh this tale um it's it's a really fascinating one because it's so old you can see connections not just to the Triforce but to other Japanese properties. So the story goes Mukashi Mukashi back in the day. Um Tokimasa Hojo, a kind of patriarch of the Hojo clan, um, was in some caves at Iwaya, and he was praying for the prosperity of his children. And on the final night of his prayers, a goddess appeared to him, and this goddess was Benzaiten, or Benten. Benzaiten is one of the seven luck gods of Japan. Quick diversion here, everybody knows one of the luck gods but not by his real name. So, Stefan, when you picture a Buddha, what do you picture? I picture a very obese man. <laughs> yes, the obese Buddha. So, um, this version of the Buddha, if you actually look into, you know, uh, Buddhist literature, Buddha's pretty skinny most of the time. He looks like just a normal person. The idea of the fat Buddha is actually... Um, this idea of, in, in Japan, he's a god named Ebisu. And Ebisu is both a name of beer in Japan that has him as the logo, but he's also, and more importantly, he's one of these seven luck gods, like Benzaiten. So it's the idea that there are these um, seven particular deities that uh, look over fortune, misfortune, and prosperity. And so Benzaiten is one of these. And when old Tokimasa Hojo was praying in this cave, Benzaiten appeared to him. Um, and uh, after some, I guess, polite conversation, uh, she said that she would absolutely fulfill Tokimasa's wishes and make sure that his family has a prosperous and healthy life. And when she left him, she left behind three golden scales. So much like the goddesses of Hyrule, when they left after the wish was fulfilled, Benzaiten left behind the Mitsuroko for the Hojo family. And it's this symbol of their connection to this meeting that Tokimasa had with this goddess. So it was just uh, three scales as a symbolic gift, as a testimony to their meeting, but they didn't have any kind of practical application afterwards. 
No, and not not, really. not in not in term not like the Triforce does, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, the but the important thing is that um, it was on departure, so it was like a not like a contract had been sealed. That sounds kind of shady, but <laughs> the idea that this pact had been formed and this connection had been formed between Hojo and uh, the Hojo family and Benzai Ten. Yeah. And so similar to the royal family of Hyrule, it just cemented their connection to the origin or this uh, goddess that had all of this power that people looked up to. Well, my atheist brain immediately comes <laughs> in and basically reasons, yeah, well, maybe this uh, Tokimasa Hojo was his name, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe he just had coincidentally three golden scales and like as a, de <laughs> a as a decor item and then uh just said like yeah i got these from you know <laughs> yeah that was from it's... from benzai 10 that was from the <laughs> a goddess of luck you know so in yeah. order to to make maybe to to reinforce as we as we said before uh his uh his social capital his virtue and his authority in mm. within the clan and outside of basically yeah radiating outside of the clan as well yeah I think I think that's probably closer to the truth. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> there was there was a you know like you say a family heirloom or something that resembled golden scales and maybe people thought they were from a dragon because Benzai Ten is often depicted as one or like a, a sea uh, deity. Um, so you know it's uh, I think the the funny thing and this is. Uh, all that religious studies really boils down to is it's a distinction without a difference because the impact was the same at the yes. end of the day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow, that was super interesting. Thank you so very much for that lesson. Arigatou gozaimasu. Doitashimashite. And uh, dear listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed this tiny excourse into the meaning and origins of the Triforce. If you have any other ideas for symbols and other kind of, let's say, cultural icons of video games, then please hit us up, let us know, and we might dive into it in the future. And while you do that, that, yes, I would love that as well. Maybe we can make it like a little bit of a continuous series where we go yeah. into these things. Uh, in the meantime, while you think out there what kind of other symbols we should investigate, we're going to move on and do some side questing. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As you know, dear listeners, in our side quests, we explore the entire internet, read every single article, and bring exactly those that seem interesting and relevant to us. Number one. Of course, everyone has heard PlayStation purchased Bungie just this week. It's actually an intense time at the moment because just recently we reported on this, I think two weeks ago, right? That Microsoft bought Activision Blizzard for 68.7 billion US dollars. And it was firmly expected that at some point, Sony would respond in some way. And last week, Sony made a move and purchased Bungie. And uh, the world is turned upside down, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, <laughs> uh, the world is turned upside down once more because notably so, Bungie is the studio that originally made Halo the series that it is today. Halo, the Xbox exclusive, the, play, the um, Xbox, yes, Xbox and PC exclusive mm. series, right? Yes. And so strongly associated with Microsoft. Are arguably what, what made the Xbox a success, if you want to really yes. get into it. <clears throat> exactly. Bungie is, of course, also the studio behind Destiny 1 and 2 at the moment. And after Bungie had worked on the Halo series, it had an exclusive deal with Activision for quite a while. And then in 2019, they went independent. They basically got out of that, that I think, 10-year contract with Activision, and they became an independent self-publishing studio. And now Sony purchased them for 3.6 billion US dollars. This is significantly less. <laughs> <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it so funny how compared to the Activision purchase, like this 3.6 billion dollars seems like pennies? Yeah. yeah, it is crazy. As as you said, I think one of the most one of the most notable things uh, that you've said on the podcast when we spoke about this is money is seemingly <laughs> meaningless yep. because uh, such a sum like sixty eight point seven US a billion US dollars is just incomprehensible. And if we think about that, a studio with such renown like Bungie and such success with Destiny two. Mm only in quotation mark costs 3.6 billion US dollars yeah. then we see that the, the dimensions are completely tilted here interestingly enough one third of this payment so this is 1.2 billion US dollars was not even part of 
the worth of Bungie in itself, but 1.2 billion US dollars are used to give to the employees of Bungie mm. to incentivize them to stick around. So if you are working at Bungie, and this would mean, if I understood this correctly, that over the next couple of years, there will be a gradual payout where you will basically participate, probably depending on how many shares you hold or... No, wait, the shares should not be relevant. It should be probably down to the hierarchy that you have in the company. I assume that the bosses make more um, than your default kind of rando programmer. I don't want to talk like negatively about such people because I think they're actually <laughs> probably one of the most valuable people in the entire video game industry. But yeah, so Sony basically incentivizes Bungie employees to stick with the company. Wouldn't it be funny if, if, if it was revealed that 68 of the $69 billion in the Activision purchase was to convince people to stay working at Activision. <laughs> <laughs> but that obviously raises the question, and I introduced this subject by comparing it to the Microsoft purchase of Activision Blizzard. Of course, you would immediately think, is this Sony's response to Microsoft's, let's say, purchasing spree of video game studios and publishers and Jim Ryan, the CEO of PlayStation, says no, this is not the case. He says, quote, These conversations have been a number of months in gestation and certainly predate the activity that we have seen this year. From our perspective, this is really doing what we feel is right for PlayStation and what we feel is the right thing to do to drive PlayStation to places we've never been before, end quote. So still, who knows? PlayStation, I think this is, on the one hand, it's a valid argument to say, well, you know, we've been working on this for a long time yeah. before news broke that Microsoft is going to purge, uh, purchase Activision Blizzard. On the other hand, it could also definitely be possible that PlayStation knew that this purchase would happen and already prepared in advance. Well, you got, so I think, who knows, really? You got to figure, I mean, a $69 billion purchase of a major game studio, there must have been whispers about it. And so, I, I, I don't know, right? But that seems like something that's, how do you hide that from other people in the industry perfectly? I don't know that you do. So I, I agree with you. I think obviously these deals take a very long time. So that seems to be true, what Jim Ryan is saying. Um, but who knows? Maybe it was a retaliatory or a pre-retaliatory effort. Yeah, at least in the context of market research, mm. I would imagine that PlayStation or Sony as such had figured that there might be big purchases coming for Microsoft and that might that they might have to prepare in some way. Yeah. Uh, maybe they are doing that right now. Maybe it's even strategically smart to do it afterwards because now people are talking primarily about Bungie and not so much about Activision Blizzard anymore. Mm. Uh, and who knows what other steps Sony might take in the future. But just in that quote that I read, Jim Ryan said, to drive PlayStation to places we've never been before and I was wondering, what does that mean? To it's obviously corporate speech. Jim Ryan is great at corporate yes. speech. He emphasizes that PlayStation first-party studios are primarily focused on story-rich single-player games. That would be Uncharted, The Last of Us, God of War, Horizon, of which we will get a new game just this month, and Spider-Man. So these are things that are clearly focused on single-player, story-heavy experiences. And thus, Bungie is a welcome addition. Places that Sony has, or PlayStation, has never been before would be big live-service multiplayer games. 
that exists on several different platforms and that produces a steady stream of revenue. I think that's kind of the idea. Yeah, and I think I I would be interested, and I'm sure that they, uh, I'm sure that this was part of their decision. Um, there must be a pretty sizable player base of Destiny on on the PlayStation if they're thinking this yeah. is worth a purchase. Um, I've never looked into it because I'm I'm not a huge fan of Destiny. I haven't really played it, but um, that's got to be a pretty big incentive where they're saying, okay, we've got this traction. Maybe we can use this as a jumping off point for more games like that. I think, as far as I'm aware, PlayStation and Bungie had a pretty close cooperation in recent years already. Mm. I think I've heard, this is not a reliable information, but I think at least I've heard somewhere that Bungie apparently also was involved in designing the DualSense controller, mm. um, basically advising PlayStation on how to improve their controllers for um, a first-person shooter. Interesting. Mm. And obviously, this raises the same question that we discussed in the context of Microsoft purchasing Activision Blizzard, which is, does this mean that Destiny and future Bungie games will be PlayStation-exclusive? And the answer to that is also pretty clearly no, this will not be the case. Jim Ryan again, he says, quote, Everybody wants the extremely large Destiny 2 community, whatever platform they're on, to be able to continue to enjoy their Destiny 2 experiences. And that approach will apply to future Bungie game releases. That is unequivocal. End quote. So clearly, Sony's game here is not to make Destiny exclusive or to make Bungie games exclusive because that would gate out probably a huge chunk of the player base that are currently playing on PC, that are playing on Xbox platforms. That's not their goal. Their idea is to have this huge community that produces a steady revenue because it doesn't really matter if you have a live service game, whether you purchase that on an Xbox or on a PlayStation. Ultimately, PlayStation owns the revenues that Bungie creates. Yeah. And that's why I think um, this is probably the right choice to make. Yeah, I think um, it's funny too, because when you think about, uh, when you do think about PlayStation, you do think about those story-rich um, sort of single-player experiences. So this seems to be, if you're going to try to tap into a market, then kind of saying, okay, well, this one that's already really well-known, now it's ours. And we're going to see how that goes for us. Yeah. And it seems like they're giving them a lot of liberties as well. So basically, Bungie said that um, for them, it's very attractive to work under the roof of Sony because it gives them active access to film and video television productions. Um, it's obviously attractive to expand their franchise in a transmedia kind of way. Of course, it must be mentioned that in December 2021, there were also several reports of harassment and workplace misconduct at Bungie that made headlines, as is kind of omnipresent at the moment, unfortunately. It's not unfortunate that these headlines exist. It's unfortunate that they are necessary. Yeah. Um, and naturally, uh, Sony as well as Bungie emphasize that they have made tremendous progress and that they will continue to do so. Specifically, Jim Ryan on the matter says the following, quote, I have been nothing but impressed and I have nothing but the highest praise for the way that Bungie organizes and conducts itself. There are a number of areas that Sony can learn from Bungie, 
Philanthropy is a cornerstone value, and I think that speaks to everything. End quote. So the result of this seems to be, we don't want to talk about this right now, but we're going to solve it. We're going to resolve the issues. Well, I, <laughs> I think... I'm optimistic. We talked about this with our Activision Blizzard story as well, that um, I there's something comforting to me about the fact that that's being addressed with the announcement, that it's not something that's being swept under the rug or that it's maybe, oh, we'll address that in a future correspondence or something like that. It seems to be, we understand it's part and parcel with this. We're taking it on and we'll we'll deal with it in in a way yeah. that hopefully is is good hopefully yeah the articles that i found on the matter and that i have linked in the show notes as well as we do with all the articles that we present in our on our side quests they most of them mentioned this issue and the fact that jim ryan also specifically addressed it number two number two so this is something that uh that i've brought um because uh, Stefan and I found ourselves saying, wow, we have um, just about a million games to play in February. Mm. <laughs> um, Pokemon Arceus came out. I've been working through that. Um, but Elden Ring is on the horizon. And speaking of horizon, <laughs> um, the new Horizon game <laughs> is also coming too. <laughs> Sifu, like, there's a lot of titles that um, that are coming out in this first quarter of the year, which is kind of, unusual usually usually the first few months of the year is like a fallow period for games because the uh the industry tries to hit the last quarter because that's the holiday market right uh, yeah so it's strange that all of these games are coming out and um recently on polygon uh nicole carpenter um wrote an article called why a new huge video game is being released every week um and obviously we're not the only ones who notice this and feel kind of uh, delightfully overwhelmed by a lot of these big titles that are coming out. Um, and so this article kind of dives into why, and it's it seems to be twofold. One, inevitably, there were delays from the pandemic. And so yeah. games that we may have expected a little earlier in the normal cycle as we understand it needed some polish. Um, they needed some more time to come out, and that's pretty understandable. It seems, though that the industry is kind of capitalizing on this change. And there's some thought that this is going to be how things are done moving forward. Um, one of the uh, the quotes that I found most interesting in the article is from Devel uh, Devolver, uh, Devolver Digital's um, Robbie Patterson, who says, I think it's a natural evolution of Q4 being the last packed window, meaning the holiday time. People get sick of it, he continues. Maybe they're less reliant on retail or relying on retailers in the Christmas rush with everything being digital now. I think naturally people started to look at January, February as wide open spaces where, yeah, they may miss that Christmas buzz, but have a clear run in January without competition. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the thing about this is, from a marketing standpoint, if you say you got a huge game or you got a, let's say, medium-sized game at least, mm -hmm. and uh, then if you squish it into that holiday period, let's say mid-November to mid-December, then you are competing with lots of other games for attention in that time frame. Whereas if you say, okay, let, in, let people enjoy their games over the Christmas period, and then when it comes to, let's say, you know, the preparation for Easter, when it comes to like 
early to mid-February. Around that time, that's when we place our game. That's when people are done playing their, their games from the Christmas holiday that they had under the Christmas tree. And now we've got some space here where we can push out our games. It seems like that's exactly right. Like uh, you, you get, um, at least I, I feel like this is a pretty normal experience. I think people will usually get like one big game around the holidays and they have some free time. So they say, I'm going to devote my time to this game. And then if four or five games come out during that time, you're probably not going to focus on the other ones. So yeah. I do think it's smart to say, well, you have your holiday time with whatever game comes out. And then January and February, they are these long stretches of no big events in the world. So you probably have a lot more free time on your hands, especially nowadays. Yeah. And publishers are going along with that since we've got such things like on PlayStation, there are huge January sales. Yeah. Where you think like, January sales? <laughs> Since when does that thing exist? Yeah. But yes, that exists, of course, because that's the time when the when the the profits that have been made over the Christmas period, they start to plummet a little mm. bit. And you can say like, hey, so here's the stuff that's, that came out last year that's going to fade out of attention pretty quickly. Uh, now let's push that into the forefront, reduce it, like give you 50% off. And that's where you can still make some money as a publisher. Exactly. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things now about this is that, okay, I just brought up that example of all of these games being released in November or December in preparation for the holidays. And you don't have time, so you feel like you're competing. So how are developers feeling about this competition now just pushed back a couple of months? So um, Finji, the Finji CEO, Rebecca Saltzman, um, Finji is the uh, uh, company behind this game Tunic that's coming out. It's like a kind of Souls-like game. It looks very cute. Um, so she said, because they're putting out a Souls-like game in February with, ah. <laughs> with Elden Ring coming out. And she's quoted saying, early on we were like, oh no, Elden Ring is coming out. And now I'm like, no, this is fun. What a cool cultural moment to be a part of. Just in terms of the genre of game we have, what a fun time to launch Tunic, our little foxy Dark Souls. So it seems like mentalities are shifting a little bit where if you if you go towards the free time that people have, they're probably not going to feel the pressure to play just one game. And they might say, well, uh, okay, this month I'll play Elden Ring and then next month I'll try out this Tunic game because I have the time. Yeah. The interesting thing about this is that's why I'm so much why I can relate to this headspace of strategizing when to release your game is because it's very similar when it comes to when to release your podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because the thing is just that people have, usually people have time to check through their podcasting app and listen to podcasts. Please, everyone out there, let me know if I'm wrong on a Sunday, because that's the kind of day in the week where you stand up, where you get up in the morning and you have a like chill breakfast and you can scroll through the internet a little bit and you see like, oh, new episode, nice. But if you release on a Sunday, then you have to try and compete with a lot of other podcasts that come out that day. Whereas if you release, let's say, Tuesday evening, where it's like not many people release their shows on that day, then of course you have a lot more attention because you're going to be like just strategically speaking, when someone's, someone opens up like Apple Podcasts, you're going to be up there with, you know, new episodes a lot longer, or at least a bit longer yeah. than on a Sunday morning. Yeah, it's, I mean, it. 
when you put it in those terms, it does make a lot of sense. Well, nobody's releasing in February, so we'll, we'll just put everything there. And now everybody's releasing in February. Now suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> ah, we place our tiny indie game in February <laughs> because nobody, nobody will see that coming. Yep. <laughs> but I thought number three. Oh, oh no, that's all right. I just thought um, it's uh, a fun a fun instance of our off-mic conversations mirroring the discourse <laughs> because it seems like everyone's having that conversation. Yes, yes. Strategical releases. Mm. Mm. There's also another release that I just want to briefly shout out. There are actually two more entries to our side quests very briefly. Number three, students out there, listen up. A new player joined the game of Game Studies Journals. Mm. So these are academic publications on the matter of game studies. This new journal is titled Play Slash Write Student Journal. It is based in Klagenfurt in Austria, though it is published entirely in English. So it strives for basically an international recognition. Now, the interesting thing about this one is there, there are lots of interesting game studies journals. Maybe we can do an episode on that mm. one day. Um, but this one is primarily for graduate and undergraduate students. Because when you're a student, you often have the situation that you write your term papers and then you submit them and then it kind of sits in a desk drawer somewhere in this, at the secretary's office before, at least at our university, it gets locked away in a metal shelf in the corridor. <laughs> and it's like nobody ever reads it apart from maybe your course leader, your professor. Now, this playwright student journal is an opportunity for you to submit articles, short articles, and maybe things that you could easily do when you've already got a term paper on the subject written and actually get them published. The first issue has been released this week. Its topic is death in video games. I would say if you are a student and you are doing it primarily for the experience of seeing how it is to publish in an academic journal, then this is a good you know, like low stakes entry point, because I assume that the, that the entry requirements are not all too high. Since it caters to undergraduate students, it also means that it will probably, it will not get the recognition that you get if you are in like, you know, the games and culture journal or something like that. But at least it's important to take these small first steps yeah. to get some experience with publishing your academic work. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little credential to have under your belt. Can always point to it. Certainly. Mm. Certainly. You can put it on your CV. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are interested in that, then check out our show notes because I've linked the journal there. And a second shout out, which is number four here, is the Amaze Video Game Festival. It's an annual indie and art house game festival that takes place in Berlin from 13th to 17th of May. Uh, it is a local festival, but it is also streamed internationally. So I think there's a lot of communication going around in English there as well. That's why I thought it makes sense to bring it up on this podcast. Yeah. So this is not just only a specific German thing, but it has its radiance throughout at least the entirety of Europe. If you make indie games, because this is a video game festival, if you make indie games and you want to participate at the Amaze Festival, then you can submit your game by February 28th, 2022. So that's relatively soon. You then have the chance to present your games to a wide audience and to potentially win some awards. For more information, you can go to a-maze.org. 
pixelsnet.net. And of course, we'll see. Maybe if we have the time, then with studying pixels, we might actually cover that event. Maybe we'll even go there. It's exciting. I always... Um... I always love those those smaller events because you get to talk to everybody who's there, which is the most exciting yes. part. Yes, you get to talk to everybody because only five people are there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. The Amaze Festival is actually pretty big. I mean, we're talking about a video game festival in Berlin, which has a very vibrant video game culture. So uh, I do think this is going to be interesting. Yeah. If we if we are able to make the time and to go there, then we'll definitely take our microphones and we'll make some interviews and so on, speak to some uh, indie game creators and then bring these interviews on the show. Okay, well, that's it for today already. It's a, a high-energy, exciting, just education-filled <laughs> episode, it felt like. Rich in information, cultural engagement. Wow, Yeah. job done for today. Job done. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you so very much for listening. If you want to support us and get Studying Pixels Plus, then keep in mind that you should go to studyingpixels.com. If you want to give us a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts, but also, as I was told just today, also on Spotify by now. If you want to reach out, send us a question, a remark, a comment, whatever, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash contact. And then we're going to talk again next week. See you, everyone. See you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.